audio performance is copyright 2012 by Dr. Gwendolyn Huxfed and may not be retransmitted or rebroadcast in any format not previously and specifically authorized by the creator. Okay, so we talked last time about double cloth, right? We had double cloth, five yarns, double weave, four yarns, double faced, three yarns, right? So double cloth fabrics that could actually be, the binder yard could be cut, right? So that fifth yarn could be taken out and we would end up with two separate pieces of fabric, each with a warp and a fill. The double weave, however, we can't cut it apart, but there are actually openings that we can put things in. Right? Any time the warps or the fills were reversed, we created a pocket. All right? um, an example of the double weave was Metlisse. Right? That was a one particular kind of throw it out there name. And then we talked about double faced, which there's no pockets inside of it. You can't separate it into anything separate. It's just a way to get the certain texture or structure of a weave on both sides of the fabric. So we mentioned uh, double faced satin ribbon, Right? You could do a double-faced twill. Right? Um, all right? There's different reasons why you do double-faced, but a lot of times it just has to do with making both sides look pretty. So that was a good example of a category of fancy weaves that there, there doesn't seem to be, there's no figure in them. They don't seem to be fancy, but they are fancy because the machine we used to make them was not your basic machine. In the same way, pile weaves, we just add some kind of 3D element to the fabric. It may not look fancy at first blush. You're thinking terry cloth, that's fancy, okay? But compared with your plain old basic plain weave, it is kind of fancy and we have to use some tricks. The machinery had to get complicated. It was a technology thing. So pile weaves encompass lots of different fabrics, but they all have in common that we have added a 3D element to the fabric in some way. So again, we have the ground structure, that basic warp and fill that creates the, the base of the fabric, and then we're going to add something. All right. Um, pile weaves, if we weave it, I'll show you a little trick we can do to fake it. But if we weave it, we're going to have a third set of yarns, either in the warp or fill direction. This third set of yarns can either be loops or they can be cut. And we've already kind of talked about this, like, oh, you can add a third set of yarns because we were talking about the double cloth or the double faced. Right? So yeah, you can add extra yarns that are doing, or even with our dobby weaves, right? We had those spot weaves, right? Well, what if we cut those spot weaves that they, that they really stuck up, stood up and added a 3D element to the fabric? And we can do it in either direction. We can have the extra yarns going, adding them when we do the filling, or we can have the extra yarns built into the warp in some way. And our textbook will have some diagrams like this, okay? But here's the loops, right, that the extra yarn wasn't cut. Maybe this is in the fill direction. So these are warp yarns we're looking at. And here's the base filling of the ground. And then here's the extra fill. Or we could cut the tops off and have it just be yarn sticking up. So actually, we can use this direction of the extra yarn to identify a couple of major categories of pile weaves. So that's one of the reasons why we're going to pay attention to is it an extra yarn in the filling direction or an extra yarn in the warp direction. 
So wet piles, piles made with extra filling yarns. Um, we will usually make these with cotton, low to average twist yarns. You know, we might want the surface to be really fuzzy. So we might use yarns that really um, untwist when they're cut. We'll add these extra filling yarns with really long floats. So this one here, it's, it's interlaced at one, and then it goes over one, two, three, four, five warp yarns before it's interlaced again. And with a fabric like corduroy, which is an example of a weft pile weave, unlike satin where we alternate where it is interlaced so that the long floats lay on the surface and we just see all these long shiny floats, with the weft pile weaves, we actually make the interlacing all in the same place. So we can come along with this cutting disc. Back in the olden days when I had to use a really tiny pair of scissors, but now we actually have sort of a device where these metal fingers, the guides, will poke up through the base fabric to lift the um, extra filling yarns. And then we'll have like a, a, this in this case it's a disc or some kind of a razor or something that comes along and where the yarn is pinched by the metal, it'll just slice it. So that, that's really fast. But we were weaving corduroys way before we even had that extra technology to cut it. So back in the day, if we just had to cut it with a, a knife, that was possible. Corduroy means, uh, was a word that was uh, amalgamated from cord du roy. So we don't think of corduroy as being especially fancy, but the name, cloth of the king, okay, not anybody got to wear corduroy, all right? It was the royal fabric because it, it was uh, made with cotton, so it was wonderful for those sporting activities because it was absorbent, and yet the king in his hunt outfit could still look regal because he was wearing a fabric that had pile, and that was different than the normal fabrics, the, the, the 3D surface. Um, the the uh, floats can only be so long because in between each of the um, interlacings, there's this area we call a valley. So if we tried to make the pile stand up taller, all, the only way to do that is to separate the interlacings further apart, and that just makes the stripe in between each whale okay, of the corduroy further apart. So there's a perfect balance in terms of the height and the density, and so we just, corduroy just can't get that tall. It ends up being sort of a low, dense pile. So there's corduroy, which, where we really emphasize the ribs and keep the pile short. And there's velveteen. Again, you, velveteen, kind of like sateen. Velveteen is velvet's poor country cousin. And so it's made from cotton instead of from silk. But it has the same kind of structure as you might see with velvets. And here's one way that you can tell the difference between velvet and velveteen, if you're not sure. Pinch it in the warp direction. And if you can see the valley in the warp direction in the velveteen, you'll see that sort of unwoven, unpiled place hidden down at the base of the, of the ribs. Then if you pinch it in the warp direction and you see the valley, it's kind of like a smile. These are little red lips and those are sort of the little teeth. So if you pinch the fabric in the warp direction and you see teeth, then it was a filling pile. And that makes it velveteen. 
right? And in a second, I'll show you a photo of pinching a velvet in the um, filling direction and seeing the smile. And then that tells us that it was actually a warp pile weave. So the smile goes in the opposite direction of the weave, in the same way that when we count warps, we move in the filling direction. Yes, ma'am? There, yes, there are. Who's downloaded that? Okay, there are three different files. One's called Basic Weave Show, one's called Fancy Weave Show, and one's called Yarn, uh, not sorry, Yarn Show was last time. One's called Knit Show. They're kind of big. The photos are big. So you don't wait until the night before the exam and realize that your internet connection is too slow. And uh, Okay? Stop by the computer lab here. They'll download it in a zip onto your jump drive. Okay? So they're, they're kind of big. But I do have photos. Yes, the same photos I'll choose from for the identification on the exam. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. No, the whale is the same thing as the rib. So when we talk about corduroy, we might say something like wide whale or pin whale, all right? And you're thinking, whale, didn't we call that the, the direction on twill? Maybe you weren't thinking that, but you could have been thinking that. Somebody could have been thinking that. I'm going to use whale again when we talk about knits on Monday. Whale means sort of this surface, a line, a structure that's not built into the weave. It's not cross lengthwise or crosswise yarns. It's not warp or fill. It's a structural detail on the fabric. And it's sort of raised a little bit. And so you kind of see that line in the twill that went diagonally, okay? And then you can sort of see how, oh, we have this rib right here. We could also call it a whale, all right? So, um, but for example, we don't call the ribs on unbalanced plain weaves. We don't call those whales because they move in the crosswise direction, so they're not really like a different detail. Um, and, you know, we don't have rules for that. It's just the common usage. All right, so that's if you're looking in the catalog and they say a wide whale, then that tells you that the rib is really thick and dense. If they say pin whale, it means the rib's really tiny. Okay. All right, so corduroy and the whales go in the warp direction. And velveteen, you can kind of vaguely see that those would be whales if they've been trimmed down enough to really see them. But when we give it a pinch in the warp direction, both the velveteen and the corduroy would have that warp-wise smile. All right, so, yes, ma'am? Which is the warp-wise smile means that's right, exactly. So that's one thing a little contradictory for people. They think, wait a minute, shouldn't a warp pile have a warp smile? Okay, but it's the opposite. In the same way that when we count the yarns in the warp direction, we don't move in the warp direction to count those yarns. We move across them. All right, it's just one of those features. Sometimes the feature of the warp yarns appears in the filling direction, and this is one of them. So the, the smile goes in the warp direction for a filling pile. Right, so a warp-wise smile means a filling pile. A filling-wise smile means a warp pile. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Warp piles. There's a couple of ways we can do these. This is the part that is so impressive to me. This is like Renaissance age technology. For a very long time, pile weaves or even satin weaves Jacquard weaves, before we had jacquard looms, so things like brocades or damasks, they were the fabric of the insanely wealthy. Everybody else just wore plain weaves, maybe a twill weave if they were lucky. 
the basic, the technology they had in their home or the home of their neighbor. So some of our best examples of these beautiful fabrics when they were originally initiated, again, are in the possession of the fabulously wealthy and across many swaths of history, European history in particular, the fabulously wealthy worked for the church. So you can see in collections of church textiles examples of brocades and damasks and velvets and velveteens and corduroys and, all, and satins, all sorts of really gorgeous fabrics. Who was rich enough to afford these fabrics? God, okay? The only person rich enough, or the king, God and the king, okay? Almost the same person sometimes. So velvet was made by hand, took a lot of time, even now we just to think of the effort it took to make the velvet. But the one or two people that were gonna buy it, right, they had, I mean, we talk about the 1% and the 99%, but talk about income inequality back in, during the Renaissance era or the Middle Ages, we can't even imagine it, how desperately poor most people were and how small the group of wealthy people was. So they could do crazy stuff, even though everyone else is wearing plain, boring, old, rough woven fabric. So as I talk about this being a Renaissance age technology, I don't want you to get the impression that everybody was swanning around. It was the two or three people in every country that could afford it. So here is a machine that makes double cloth. There are the two warp beams, okay? The two separate warps, the two separate shuttles that are weaving those two warps, okay? Harnesses that move in different directions, all right? There is the fifth yarn. Remember that fifth yarn, the binder yarn in the double cloth? Only now, instead of having the binder yarn be some small, innocent, innocuous yarn that we're just going to hide between two pieces of fabric, this binder yarn turns into the pile yarn, and it is the best yarn that we can find. It is lusciously dyed, beautiful silk filaments that are traveling up and down, back and forth between these two separate pieces of cloth, as in this diagram here, okay? So these warp yarns just switch places. They just move between the two different cloths, okay? The, the pile tension rods just lift them and lower them every, you know, at, at, inter, you know, at various intervals, okay? Um, depending on the length that we want to make the pile, right? And we can control the length of the pile just by how far apart we keep the two pieces of fabric, which is totally different than the filling pile where the length of the pile was kind of determined by how wide the valley was going to be, and so we had a dilemma. But in the case of the warp pile weaves, that dilemma is gone. The length of the pile is how tall the fiber can get before it collapses under its own weight. Okay? It's how stiff that pile, you know, if the pile can stand up for a whole inch, Great, go for that. So, someone who has a really, really scary job takes that piece of double cloth and takes a knife and carefully cuts those pile weave yarns. You can bet that is a really, really well-paid person. Anybody who's hands that steady, right? So now we've got a machine that does it, but initially it was somebody literally with a knife. You move even one wrong way, and you're going to cut the ground, and that piece of the velvet is wrecked. Okay? And this was like really expensive yarn, 
all right? You had to get all the way from Istanbul, where they got it all the way from China, because nobody knew how to make silk at the time. Um, and then once you get it going, you'll put those pieces of fabric and just keep reaching in there and cutting between the piles, right? But it works out because somebody is having to weave, right? And it's going to be, you'll probably have two people on either side that are doing the weaving because you can't sit in front. So you, it works out. They're weaving just about as fast as you're cutting. This is really slow. You can see why it's expensive. Incredibly precious materials, possibly patented or secret equipment, right? And timely, uh, time-intensive process where one little slip-up can wreck everything. So velvet is the result. Can you guys kind of see the lines that would develop in the filling direction? Let's go back and think about that. If, this, if we're looking at this from the filling, we're looking at this from the side of the fabric. So these yarns right here are the filling yarns. So this space that's being created is going along in the filling direction. So when we cut it open, there's a little space there that goes along in the filling direction, this sort of line that we can see. So this filling direction smile means that we have a warp pile. Very long, but not as dense. Um, why do you think that the, uh, that the velvets made with the filament yarns are not as dense as velvet, where the pile isn't as dense? What do you think? The, these piles, velvet, that are made with filament yarns are less dense than like velveteen. It's made with a spun yarn. Okay, so the, because of the length of the pile? Well, yes and no. That's actually, the length of the pile is related to the root thing. How many fibers are in a filament yarn? One. Minimum, one. How many fibers are in a spun yarn? More than one. Okay, <laughs> probably a lot. Yeah, so when we cut the filament yarns, they open up and spill out all this fiber. But when we, I mean, a, a spun yarn, they open up and spill out a lot of fiber. But when we cut a filament yarn, especially if we used a filament yarn that was a monofilament or maybe just two filaments, there's not a lot of filaments there. But as she pointed out, they can stand up straight, right, because we aren't having fibers falling out. The filament is whole and in and of itself, the length that you cut the pile. Whereas if you cut a cotton, the cotton itself may be only this long. And so if you cut the pile that long, this, the cotton filament, um, cotton fiber will just fall out. You just have to brush it out. It's like tra trash on the floor. So you were going in the right direction. They were connected. All right, so velvet made with filament yarns. Sorry. Nowadays, we have filament yarns like polyester and nylon and acetate is a filament. And so it's not necessarily that velvet is ooh, expensive and precious made with pure silk. We, you know, we've moved on, but it still has the same luster that you see from filament yarns, whereas velveteen will have the softness and the less luster that we see with spun yarn. So that's another quick way to ID them. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Bingo. Yes, double. Du so it's a lot of trouble, but you do end up with two pieces. Here's something else wicked cool. So you could make the two ground cloths different colors. The colors will sort of show through. Do you see how vaguely we can tell that there's kind of a lighter peach in the background there? So I've actually seen some velvets where the warp and fill that is the ground is black. 
the filling yarn that forms the pile may be a deep purple. So you have this kind of shimmery, 3D night kind of effect. But you could take on the other warp, you could put in a light apple green, okay? And in which case you have sort of an iridescent, the purple over the light green, okay? It's, it has some depth. You see the hints of green underneath it moves as the pile moves. So yeah, you can get some really cool effects mixed in color, and you could do both of them at the same time. I mean, if you had a big, de if you had a big lot, obviously you wouldn't bother. But back in the handicraft era, oh, you can bet they were playing around with that. They were experimenting with all of the effects that you could get from velvet and selling, you know, telling the bishop, oh, my lord, your robes will be the most excellent. Or it's probably your eminency. Oh, your eminency, your robes will be the most excellent robes ever seen. Okay, and this poor bored guy, because of the whole celibacy thing, he's going to go for it. Okay, and pick the fanciest outfit he can have. I'm not saying celibacy is boring, obviously. Celibacy could be good. Lots of other things you can think about. All right. Um, we want to be careful and uh, support sexual diversity, and celibacy is part of that. We um, crushed pile. When I was a kid, I had a box bed. Uh, my mom had it, it specially commissioned for me. I, I was like a little princess, right? No, she did a gig for some guy. She designed some, she was a drafter. She designed something for him, and he, he said he could make some, a piece of furniture for us. And so she made this box bed that had curtains. It was like my little world, right? I could pull the curtains on my little bed. Yes, it's so Middle Ages. So my first set of curtains she bought at the um, huge fabric warehouse in Denver. She b bought a roll of ice blue crushed velvet, which I sacrificed for the Merchant of Venice when I was the costume designer in junior high. So everybody apparently in Venice wears ice blue velvet. It was amazing, okay? But yeah, all the, the costumes. So um, then I went with seersucker in peach. It was my, my evolving identity. But um, the great thing about the crushed velvet pile is that it really is useful for things like, um, you know, I had a pillow and a bedspread. It was the whole, it was really, actually now that I think about it, really <laughs> atrocious. But the point is I could roll all over velvet right, reading my books and listening to the radio and all that because it was already crushed. Like it didn't matter that I was crushing it with my body. It just added to its variation and interest. The fact that it was squished back as curtains most of the time, right, I only closed the curtains when I needed to hide from the world, right, or when it was really cold, that was, we didn't, I, you guys know, right, I grew up in the mountains, we, like we didn't, we had electricity but Eventually, we got electricity, but we just used wood. So my bedroom, your bedroom's always cold when you grow up in the mountains with a wood stove. The only room in the house that's really warm is the kitchen or the room with the stove in it. So it's nice to have the curtains, insulation. All right, enough about me, but I have a soft spot every time I see that. This is not actually, it's just the closest I could find to my childhood curtains. It says evening wear. I just don't know. Okay, interior designers, that's why I put these in here. These are for you, okay? These are the velvets of the interiors world. Pan A, pile is where we actually crush the pile in one direction, again. Otherwise, you're not gonna put velvet on a couch because you'll just have like butt shapes in it, okay? But you can put pan A on a couch because it's already been flattened down, so they can't flatten it anymore in a special way, okay? That might be rude looking. So just uh, flatten it all in one direction. Just, I'm not seeing it as evening wear. Is anybody seeing it as evening wear? Maybe in the 80s. 
right? We go through the opulent trends every so often, but so for fashion designers, I'm just saying, you know, I just don't know, okay? I think these fabrics may not be for you. Um, but that double weave method, the double cloth method, I'm sorry, is not the only way that we can make a pile weave using warp yarns. There's one other method, another method, I should say, called the overwire method. What do you think that the overwire method involves? Yeah, that was a pretty good giveaway. Um, the fabrics that we make using the wire method, um, frise and gross point, they are mainly used in interiors. So again, I'm, I throw in these things specially for the interior design majors in the class. Frise and gross point, the cool thing about them is, unlike the um, double cloth method, which just creates whales that go in the filling direction, and that's all there is to it, the overwire method, we can actually raise yarns out of the ground. So we put in extra yarns and we can raise them, but we do not have to raise them in the filling direction. We can actually put these wires down in kind of any arrangement we want to and then just use them to lift these yarns as we go along. So the over-the-wire method, it's also time-consuming until we invented machines to do it automatically, but we can actually create designs in the pile. We can make, you know, um, key, Greek key shapes or diagonal lines or, I mean, you can see how cool that would be. So we basically just have these, the, the extra warp yarns that we're going to raise and then we just, you know, um, the, these extra warp yarns are under a different level of tension. They're not being held by tremendous tension. They're just sort of being held loosely and then we just kind of, um, you know, have the wire that we're laying down and sort of moving as we weave along. Right, so that the yarn goes over the wire, and as you can see, it's kind of a flat, it's the height of the pile. And then when we reach the end, right, of the line, we can just take the wire out, and the piles are sticking up. We can cut them or leave them uncut. We can do both. It's kind of cool. So I know, that doesn't look cool, okay? But, right, remember boring world, you know, where people don't have much interesting stuff, then maybe this is going to be fabulous. And actually, um, I'll keep it really short, but my music teacher, my piano teacher, she had a sofa with this. So if I were doing an interior where I wanted to evoke like the 50s, I would so do frise. Um, the difference between frise and gross point is just a matter of scale. Gross point means um, big, right? Gross means big. So it's just that the pile is more obnoxious and obvious, but otherwise, like in these photos, they look exactly the same. But can you see how the whale goes in like all different directions, like diagonally? They're taking advantage of that. And how like these are uncut, but you see sort of different heights in the design because you just use different size wires. Pretty cool, actually. Sculpted. Sculptured. So there's the frise. Um, on the back, this is a really important thing. There are pile, we, uh, pile effects that we'll talk about in a minute uh, that we use for carpeting all the time. So I'm showing you the back because interior designers are going to need to turn some of these fabrics over to make sure that they weren't made in another method. On the back, we can see warp yarns, and uh, filling yarns, and warp yarns. And we can see that these extra yarns are just interlaced, right? This is just a weave. If this fabric were made in some other way, we, and I'll show you photos, we'll see something different. 
and that really helps us ID, is this a pile weave or is it a pile effect? Meant to look like a pile weave but not really be one. There's gross point, it's just larger. It looks exactly the same. I don't know how I could convince you other than hunting down someone that has a sofa and I just wasn't able to do that. And then sitting on it to say, see, look how big it is. All right. Third method of making a warp pile weave. So we now have double cloth over the wire and slack tension. Whew, who knew? Like those filling piles when we first thought, who knew those would be the easy ones? Slack tension weaving goes along the same idea that we figured out for all of these, that that pile, the, the warp yarns that are going to make the pile, they can't be under the same tension as the yarns that make the base because we have to be able to lift them in some way, right? Pull them from uh, cloth to cloth in the double cloth method or wrap them over a wire in the over the wire method. So this method, it doesn't involve an extra loom. It doesn't involve, um, you know, cutting anything until maybe later. It doesn't involve wires. It just involves having some yarns that are under less tension, very little tension at all on a separate warp beam. Right now, that looks just like a normal warp. It isn't until you take the reed and beat that you discover that some of the yarns, and notice how they wove two rows of filling yarns. So they did each of the warp yarns is now trapped by an over and an under. They didn't beat between those two. They wove them right next to each other. So now that warp yarn is trapped. Now, some of those warp yarns are under tremendous tension. I just have to do this without making obscene gestures. Every year I succeed. Okay, so some of the warp yarns are, they are under tremendous tension. So this, this finger here is under tremendous tension. So when I pull with the reed, you know, the comb that's coming along to try and shove these filling yarns down along that warp yarn, this warp yarn isn't going anywhere, okay? So I push and, the, and it's the filling yarns that move. But some of the warp yarns are not under tension, all right? So when I push, they just bend, right? The filling yarn is pushed by the reed and it goes clear up, okay? And that warp yarn that wasn't under tension, it was trapped by the two filling yarns. It just stays there and it sticks up like a little loop. So that's what you mean by slack tension. Every, maybe not every other, maybe every third or every fourth yarn is on a separate warp beam that isn't under tension. And when we beat, it pops up because it, it can, it, you know, there's no incentive for the filling yarns to slide along its length. So it just sticks up. And you can hopefully see that in the picture, that these yarns right through here are the ones that are now popping up as we beat that. And this is how we make terry cloth towels. Yeah, you always wanted to know, right? Here's the cool thing. Like this time, all of the loops beat up to the front side. But if we wanted to make a terrycloth towel that had loops on both sides, we can do that. Okay, we can encourage some of the loops to go up and some of the loops to go down onto the back side. We can cut them if we want, right? So each of those yarns is held by uh, interlacing of the filling yarn. So if we cut them, they're still held pretty good. We'll do this with cotton so that it spreads open. So like I have a rug on my floor in my bathroom. It's a cut terrycloth weave, right? And so it's got nice soft fuzzy. It looks like a carpet only. It's, and I only wash it every so often, so my loss of fiber isn't so bad. But then I obviously use towels 
just, you know, in case that was a mystery for you. And the towels that I use are just like the towels you use. They're uh, a terry cloth, like this. And they look the same on both sides, right, because we'll just encourage the loops to go to one side or the other, although we could encourage them to go to just one side if we wanted. So when you are buying terry cloth towels, or sometimes you are one of those people, you're in that, uh, going through that consumeristic, consumeristic orgy, as it is now, rather than a love orgy, um, called a wedding, then you might be picking, you might be picking towels for your registry, right? Right? Okay? So um, this is what you want to be looking for when you pick a towel, a really good towel. Softness, we'll talk about that later. Softness is no good for determining the quality of the towel. That softness is temporary and will wash right out. You'll have to replace it every time you launder the towel. Okay? But loop density, that's a gift that keeps on giving. Okay? You can really brag about the towels that you gave someone if they didn't select them or the ones you selected, you can feel good. So just get down right in there and look at the base of the loops and just get a sense of how many loops you have per inch. You can use your pick glass even and kind of count along, okay, in the filling direction and just see how many of those warp yarns are popping up in that inch. So now I'm going to talk about this third category, right? We had um, pile weaves, we had warp uh, filling and warp pile weaves. Now I'm going to talk about pile effects. A low-cost alternative, that's what the down arrow means, low-cost. A low-cost alternative. You need equipment, but it's not, goes faster, less, less issues. A really popular one is, sorry about that, oh man, it's the worst when the instructor yawns. I'm just going to talk about it because maybe that will help us get over it. Because, like, I'm going to influence everybody. Now y'all are going to start to yawn, and it's just going to totally be contagious. You know what? Let's just take, like, a two-minute calisthenic break. Okay, I'm going to turn the lights back on, get up, turn around a few times, sit back down, you know, walk out of the room and come back in. Something about the weather, maybe? We're just feeling a little sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> 